Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon, here with my friend and Chavruta, Yerdena Azband. Our daf of the day, Masachet Rosh Hashanah, daf Kaftet, page 29. Um, before we begin, another shout-out for our upcoming Siyum next Sunday, uh, November 14th at 5 p.m. Israel time, 10 a.m. The U.S., you will, in the U.S., on the East Coast of the U.S., rather, and the rest of the world can follow suit with the time zones, as we know. Um our daf deals with, well, we end this parak and begin the new parak, but um, before we end the parak, we have a few sensitive discussions, I would say. The first, the daf opens with a discussion about how it is, how it works, that the bal tokea, the person who's blowing the shofar, needs to have intent for the people listening to be able to be uh, fulfill their obligation, right? So then we've spoken about the intent of the listener, but here we're also talking about the intent of the person who is blowing the shofar. And you hear this in shul, meaning they make an announcement that says, you know, everybody should have intent to to fulfill their obligation, and the baltokeya is having intent to help everybody fulfill their obligation. Meaning, this is part and parcel of the way the mitzvah is carried out in our synagogues in this day and age as well. So, uh, from that, I'm going to the mishnah at the in the middle of Amud Aleph. It's the last mishnah in the parak, and it's a little bit more narrative perhaps than we've seen so far. So this is a citation from a verse from the book of Shemot that when there when there's a war between Bnei Israel and Amalek um, as they're traveling in the desert, really, right? So they're they're fighting. It's a war, and when Moshe holds up his hands, then Israel wins. And then you know the continuation of the story is that when he would be fatigued and he would let his arms drop, then Amalek would prevail. And then in the end, um, they get Aaron and Hor come and hold his arms up so that they can actually win. But the Gemara here says, I'm sorry, I skipped the line. Can it really be the case that the arms of Moshe, right? Meaning that they are up or they are down. Is this magic that they are um, winning or losing a war? So rather what happened was, meaning the this is a real true philosophical discussion in a very short Gemara question on a Pasuk, right? Where it asked with cynicism, can it really be the case that Moshe's arms or what we're making B'nai Israel win is this magic, right? It doesn't say is this magic, and it doesn't get into the whole philosophical discussion of cause and effect, but then it answers it with, uh, like, each line here, I think, is pretty profound and worth its own essay discussion, so to speak. Um, so that really what would happen is that B'nai Israel would look like the, the, the warriors who are fighting, the soldiers who are fighting, would see Moshe standing there, see his arms up, they would be reminded to think of Aviyam Shibashimaim, meaning God in the heavens, right? And then and then they would feel empowered to fight stronger, to fight better, and that's when they would win. And if his hands were down and they didn't spot this, and then they didn't think about God at that moment, and then they would lose, meaning let's give all this credit to God, not to Moshe's magic hands, right? And the idea is that the people's intent, right, the intent alone was enough to rally them to do better in war. So 
So then we have another verse. This is still in the Mishnah. This is a highly unusual Mishnah, where we've got another verse quoted from Bamidbar, from the Book of Numbers, which is talking about the Nachash and Nechoshet. This is the serpent on the staff, on the pole that later came to be really the, the sign, the medical sign, right? Where the verse says, you know, make yourself a, a fiery serpent and put it on a pole. And then everyone, um, it will happen that everyone will be bitten. And when he sees it, he will live. Meaning, and that's and that's how it comes to be the medical sign, right? Because um, the idea of seeing this and living by itself should be, you know, an, a good enough cure. And then the Mishnah asks, is it really the vision of this serpent that lets a person die or lets a person live? So the answer is the same idea. This idea, again, there's no magic from this banner with a snake on it, right? But rather, um, when the people would look to heaven, you know, look to this banner flying high, um, as they would march, let's say, and then they would turn their eyes heavenward towards Hashem in heaven, and then they would be healed. So we could ask, and we should ask, right? You know, it's not even that simple, right? It's We can talk about the war against Amalek in a pretty clear-cut way because we know what happened. It was done, right? B'nai Israel won, and they won presumably because it, exactly this way, God helps them. But we also know plenty of people, Shaloneda, we know plenty of people who are sick, who daven, you know, in you know, very heartfelt ways and are not necessarily healed. So as much as the Mishnah says, don't be so simple-minded as to think that this is the banner of the Nachash, of the serpent that's healing them. It's also a little bit tricky to say that all you have to do is, you know, direct your heart your, or your eyes heavenward, and um, and that will be enough to heal you. Okay, so all of that is this important philosophical discussion about, I would say, success and intent. And then the Mishnah, again, it's a strange Mishnah, um, brings us back to the halachic discussion so we have a halachic discussion here about how uh, a a deaf mute or somebody who is shote, somebody who is the translation I have says imbecile. It's often translated as a fool, but it doesn't mean someone who's a goofball. It means somebody who truly cannot, um, you know, be cognitively present. I would say vakatan, a minor, um, cannot fulfill, cannot. Um, provide the means to fulfill the obligation of the general congregation. And here's the principle. Anybody who is not himself obligated in the matter cannot um, discharge the obligation on behalf of the community at large. So is because for example, we all know that there's a time when a cheresh, somebody who was a deaf mute, who was not was not able to communicate and even may have grown up without language and may in fact have been incapable of this kind of intent, let's say. Whereas nowadays, nowadays, you know, somebody who is, you know, not able to hear, we and even somebody who's not necessarily able to speak, nowadays very often, you know, or most often, I would say, acquires language, can be highly intelligent, and presumably is purely capable of intent to the extent that this kind of limitation is a little bit, makes us a little bit squirmy in this day and age. It's a limitation that makes sense in the time of the Gemara. Some of it is a limitation even that makes sense even now, meaning I think all societies, all Western societies have limitations on a minor versus somebody who's reached the age of majority, somebody who does not have cognitive 
abilities to be um, to be functioning society or uh, again, these lines get very tricky because we certainly know plenty of people who might not have the same cognitive abilities as everybody else who can certainly function in society. So the Mishnah here is using the terms of its day, certainly, and the expectations of its day in terms of what's a, what one is able to do, let's say. Um, and then what I find to be also interesting here, here, Dana, is that the Gemara picks up on this right away, meaning the Gemara picks up on the halachic discussion. It doesn't go back to the philosophical discussion about turning one's heart to God. And it gives us additional categories onto what it means for somebody who's obligated to blow the shofar and who can and who cannot. So just briefly, everybody is obligated in the mitzvah of shofar, except we've just said that that not everybody can do it. Not everybody can blow because not everybody is obligated. In it. So it's interesting that the initial words are everybody is in fact obligated. It's it's a kind of a sharp commentary by the Gemara in its placement on the Mishnah. So the list here is remarkable. It says, okay, first of all, lest you think that this is specific to Kohanim or for just regular Israelim, it's all of them. Kohanim, Levim, Israelim, everybody's obligated in the Shofar. Gerim, converts. And in this case, it's not exactly clear, you know, is that a Ger Toshav or Ger Tzedek, somebody who truly converts, but it seems to be somebody who converts to Judaism. Va'avadim, Shucharim, because here's where you get maybe the a closer status to Garrett Toshev, uh, the Evid, um, a Canaanite servant or slave who has been freed, is now kind of obligated to keep the mitzvot, and that person is obligated in shofar. Tumtum androgynous. Now, this is interesting because the question of women has not been mentioned yet, but a tumtum and a tumtum is one who has neither um, neither male nor female genitalia, and androgynous has both. Oh, and, like, and lastly, this is a status of where the the, the freeing status of, of a slave has not yet been completed. So he's got the status of half free and half not free. All of these people are supposed to be obligated in the Tkiat Shofar. And so then the Gemara goes on to say, like, to, to parse all this, to give us the definitions of each of these um, each of these categories and likewise to say well what do you mean of course everybody should be obligated you know how is this even a discussion and then it gives us a little bit of discussion and lastly of course it talks about the half slave half free man who cannot just start like it's a really tricky thing to have part of you part of your status being free and obligated and part of you not so it makes for interesting discussion um and i again will note that the gemara never comes back to talk about the, the Mishnah's philosophical bent, which I find to be interesting because I would have thought that there's a lot to say. Yeah, they sort of, they're really practical here. The philosophical piece is just really not what the focus is at all. Right, really not. I mean, you know, and then just lastly, I want to say that the Gemara, the Daf here, and it really is the Perak here, closes with different people being Moti other people in other things. It talks about Hamoti, it talks about Matzah, it talks about Kiddush, right? This phenomenon of people discharging the obligation of another person is its own extensive discussion, which I'm going to leave aside now in the interest of your Dana taking over for the rest of the DAF, but just so you should know that it's all there.
And with that, we conclude Parak Gimel. Right. So now we move on to our last Parak of Rosh Hashanah. And we start with a great Mishnah. Yom Tov to Rosh Hashanah, Shachal Yom Shabbat. So Yom Tov to Rosh Hashanah that falls on Shabbat, which we know happens all the time. And we know the halacha is, is that we actually don't blow shofar on, on, you know, at that time. But here we find the origin of this, right? So what actually used to happen is, is that even if Rosh Hashanah fell on Shabbat, in the Beit HaMikdash, they still would blow the shofar, but in the rest of the country, it would not be uh, blown. So we've mentioned this before, that there was a series of takanot, series of sort of uh, decrees that Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai made after the destruction of the second Beit HaMikdash, essentially to sort of preserve uh, Judaism and to transform what Judaism was going to look like without a Beit HaMikdash, without it being temple-centric anymore. And so one of the things he did was he made a takana, he made a decree that you could actually blow uh, the uh, shofar on Shabbat, which again is not something that we do now, um, anywhere that there was a beitin. Now, when they mean by that as a beitin is what they're referring to is not just a beitin of sort of uh, three judges. They're talking about a large beitin um, and presumably more of like where the Sanhedrin was. Um, I'm a Rabbi Elazar. So Rabbi Elazar actually qualifies that. And I wonder if it's because he realizes like then any sort of city could get together and be like, hey, we have a group of 23 judges or 71 judges. And um, and he says, no, it was only in Yavna, right? Remember the famous story of Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai uh, that he basically pleads with the Romans where he says, Tain li yavna right, to not preserve Yerushalayim, but instead to preserve the Torah scholars and let them go to Yavna. So this was an exception made for Yavna. Um, and this would also make sense because in a way then what Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai would be expressing is the primacy of, you know, Torah knowledge as going to be the new focus post-Beit HaMikdash in a post-Temple world. But this only took place in Yavna according to Rabbi Elazar. Amrilo, echad Yavna, echad komakom and so they said to him, no, he made this, this was the practice in. Yavna was also the practice anywhere that there was a Beitin. And then the Mishnah sort of like, yes, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai did this, but they sort of want to like say like, okay, but don't worry, Yerushalayim was still always more special. And how was it more special than Yavna? Was shakol yir shihiro right? That any, um, any city where the residents could see Yerushalayim and hear the surrounding shofar from it, which was near to Yerushalayim, people would come to Yerushalayim, they could sound the shofar there as well because it was considered to be part of Yerushalayim. So in other words, yes, the baiting rule took place, but if you lived in one of the surrounding areas of Yerushalayim, you actually were allowed to blow the shofar. Um, and then it says, But in Yavna, they could only blow the shofar in front of the court itself. It's not like you could do it in the surrounding cities. So it, it's, you know, this mission is interesting because on the one hand, it's sort of trying to sh- tell us that yes, Rabbi Yochanan Rabbi, Rabbi made this exception, but it's very quick to qualify what the exception was and to make clear that Yerushalayim still always had a place of prominence. And I think that's sort of an overcorrection. We acknowledge the innovation of what Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai did but we want to make sure that we remember that Yerushalayim will always be, you know, primary in our religion. And so therefore, the mission sort of wants to qualify that because think about what a difference this was, you know. So then the Gemara goes on to basically 
give us the uh, midrash halacha, the, the halachic proof based on Sukim of why you cannot blow shofar um, on Shabbat, right? And it quotes a series of Sukim from Vayikar and from Bamidbar. So this was really going against, you know, what the Torah says that you're allowed to do. Um, and so then the discussion is, okay, why was this allowed? So the Gemara first begins with saying why, why you couldn't blow the shofar on Shabbat. Um, and then, right, it says, I'm a Rabbi Levi Bar-Lachma, I'm a Rabbi Chama Bar-Hanina, right, this first passage from Vayikra, chapter 23, verse 24 says, you know, it should be a, a rest, a memorial blast. And by Midbar chapter 29, verse 1, it says, it's a day of blowing for you. It's a day that you actually have to sound the shofar, right? Lo kasha, this isn't a kasha. So it's saying, yes, that day, the pasuk in Vayik, where it says Shabbaton Zikron Tura, is reminding us that Shabbat ultimately trumps the Yom Tura when Rosh Hashanah falls out on Shabbat. But when the, the second pasuk in Midbar is referring to when Rosh Hashanah falls out on a weekday. So this is where we know that you don't blow the shofar outside of the Beit HaMikdash on Shabbat. And then Rava comes with an obvious question. Amar Rava, he goes, this doesn't make sense. If it's really a Del Raisa that you are not allowed to blow the shofar on Shabbat, then how can you even do that in a temple? Like you're not allowed to be over on a Del Raisa. And also, there's another problem with this, which is that, like, actually blowing a shofar is not a malacha. It's not prohibited. So you don't even need a verse to exclude it from Shabbat. In other words, it's reversing it both ways. And the one he's saying, if it's a Dil Raisa, Rav is saying, why should you have been allowed to blow it in the shof- in the uh, in the Beit HaMikdash? Then he's reversing it and saying, also, blowing a shofar is really not a malacha. What if the 39 malachot are you violating, and therefore, actually, everyone should be allowed to blow the shofar. So that's not what it could be at all. And I love this kasha, this question of Rava, because he sort of looks at it from both angles. So then so then they answer, right? Right? And so the Gemara wants to give a proof to this last piece of Rava, and it says, right, that uh, uh, they said, a sage said in the school of Shmuel, that when it says, Right, any prohibited labor of works you shall not perform. This is pasuk, the same pasuk of uh, that's quoted before of Yom Yelachem, right? And then it's also saying you should not perform any malacha, right? This basically comes to exclude, okay, this teaching comes to exclude the sounding of the shofar, the removal of bread from the oven, which is not a skill, which is a skill and not a labor, right? It's Shehi Chachma Ve'ina Malacha. And so therefore, this teaching really says it's really not prohibited to right to actually anybody could blow the shofar. Um, there's no del raisa issue. So what is it that we weren't allowed to do it? Ella Amarava mi del raisa mi shari shari. So he says by Torah law, yeah, you actually can blow the shofar on Shabbat. But rather, right, it was the sages made a decree, and this is according to the opinion of Rava. To Amarava, Rava said hakol chayvim tiat shofar ve'ena kol bekiim tiat shofar. Everybody is obligated to hear the shofar, but not everyone is expert. And that goes back to what you were saying, right? That the person blowing the shofar has to have a tent, the person listening to have to tent. But it's a kind of an interesting mitzvah because we understand it requires a certain skill to fulfill that not everybody will have. 
right? And so really the reason it was decreed that you cannot blow it on Shabbat, and we've seen this before with Lulav, which they cite as well, right? This is the next example they give in the Gemara, is that really they were more worried, yeah, you can blow the shofar on Shabbat, but you can't carry it, right? And so they were worried you would go to an expert, sort of practice, because not everybody is bucky in it, and then you would accidentally carry it into a Rishusa Rabbin. And this is the reason also why we don't take a lulav on Shabbat and we don't read a Megillah. It's not that the actual act of using those vehicles for a mitzvah is a sore. It's more about what you would do with that actual item. And you might come to violate the carrying the, the hotzah part of Shabbat. So, you know, just a very interesting discussion about where we actually get this from. Um, and again, we don't blow the shofar on Shabbat. That is what our practice is. But Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai instituted it. I don't have a good answer. You know, so I guess just when a, there was no more baiting anymore, that's when basically this, this practice stopped. And then finally, I just want to add with this one last very interesting story where they showed how did this actually take hold? And again, I think this shows the story, how innovative and actually like how not accepting maybe the people were of this innovation. Misha Chavra Beit Hamidash, he's King Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, right? So Tanu Rabbanan, Pamachad Chal Rosh Hashanah liyot Shabbat. So one time it did happen that Rosh Hashanah fell out on Shabbat. Vayu Kol Harim Inachnesim, and all the cities gathered, right? Basically, they all came to Yavna, right? Amar Lahem Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, Livnei Betera. So Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai said to the sons of Betera, who were basically the Chachamim, the leading halachic authorities of that day, right? Nitka, he said, you should blow the shofar. Um, not doing. They said, no, we're, let's judge it first. In other words, let's discuss it first. We're not going to blow it. We need to discuss it. He says, no, blow it. We'll talk about it later. So they agree to blow it. And then they say, okay, now let's discuss whether or not we should, we should have blown it, right? Whether or not it's left. So he almost tricks them in a way. He says, the horn was heard in Yavna. And now you're going to try to refute an action after it was done. In other words, we already did it. Now you're going to want to say that you're not allowed to do it. So there's no point in actually, uh, there's no point in actually uh, discussing it at all. So really interesting way that he sort of gets them to accept this. Now, why did B'nai B'tayra sort of agree to that? Because it's sort of when, when you're reading the story, it seems like, well, of course, it's an obvious setup like, just to do it. And then he says, oh, no, don't worry. We'll discuss it later. But I really think what this story shows is, you know, again, we always talk about these takanot that Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai did. And we, you know, we now talk about Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai for the great scholar he was. But I think this piece really shows us that, you know, this was considered to be very innovative and people were hesitant to do it. And he did have to sort of push it through in a somewhat very aggressive and one could almost say duplicitous way. Well, and now it's the way we carry out the mitzvah of shofar, meaning if we didn't know this stuff, we would never think this. Oh, yes, for sure. But but the but the tricker, you know, he tricks them a little bit. I, I just found to be totally fascinating. For sure. But that's what I mean. Like, like we would right? there's so many practices that are just part and parcel of what it means to be Jewish, even if you're not all that religious and all the more so if you are all that religious. And then if you don't come back to find out this story, right, of how it all came to be. And, you know, we can argue over, you know, how many details are here and what's missing and so on. And and yet you want to say there's a duplicity here. 
who would ever know this? Like, I understand I'm repeating myself. I just, I just, yeah, no, no, right. We don't, we don't know this. This is a really interesting, and and I appreciate that the Kamara is willing to share it also. Right, right. There's no whitewashing here of There's a real no Zach Eyes right? The Kamara is willing to leave it here and for it to sit here. Well, that's our DAP discussion for the day. Ring us reviews on all major podcasts. Thank you to Reverend Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hydrant website. Let us know what you thought about the staff on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.